0: It's been a rough ride for U.S. stock indexes since the Fed's announcement on Wednesday that it had decided to leave interest rates unchanged. And of course, it was followed up by a Powell press conference. In the last three days, the Nasdaq composite is down by just under 4.5%. S&P 500 down almost 2.5%. Dow Jones holding up better down about 1%. Clearly, what was weighing down the S&P and not so much the Dow are the tech stocks. They're really dominant in the NASDAQ, and that's why it's down the most. What people are blaming the sell-off on is the fact that the Fed was not dovish enough, if you can believe that. First of all, one of the statements that the Fed did make is they intend to leave interest rates at zero throughout at least 2023. Now, I'm not really sure if that means that maybe they're going to start raising them in 2023, or they'll leave them at zero through the end of 2023, and they're not going to start raising them until 2024. But whatever it is, it's a pretty solid commitment to leave rates at zero. I don't think the Federal Reserve at any point in time following the 08 financial crisis made a commitment uh, that solid, right? To leave rates for so low for so long, but you know, I'm not the only one that's saying that this wasn't enough. I mean, even Neil Kashkari came out today. I was reading an article he wrote, and, and and he says that the Fed's commitment not to raise rates wasn't strong enough. Now, I don't know what he's talking about. I mean, how much stronger could they have made it? I mean, could he add in a few more? Not even thinking about thinking abouts. Uh, I, you know, it's pretty clear the Fed's not going to raise rates, but maybe cash carry wants uh, a more definitive statement that like, we're not going to raise rates no matter what. Uh, But, you know, in his article that he wrote, kind of saying that the Fed's uh, commitment to not raise rates wasn't strong enough. uh, What he did say, though, was that, you know, if we are surprised by an unexpected heating up of inflation, he said, well, you know, that's an easy problem for the Fed to solve. Oh, really? A unexpected heating up of inflation is an easy problem to solve? How exactly is the Fed going to solve an unexpected heating up of inflation? Well, it only has one tool, right, monetary policy. All it can do is raise interest rates and shrink its balance sheet. It can sell treasuries and reduce the money supply, which has been growing dramatically, although the balance sheet has kind of been stuck right around 7 trillion. Uh, so that hasn't really been moving. I think we're getting ready for another big jump in that balance sheet though. But how is the Fed gonna gonna fight inflation? How is that an easy problem to solve? It's an impossible problem to solve, which is why the Fed isn't even gonna try. I mean, it's amazing if Kosh Kerry actually thinks that it will be a simple thing to rein in an unexpected uh, heating up of inflation when that would require much bigger rate hikes. I mean, the reason that cash carry wants to make sure the market knows that rates are going to stay at zero indefinitely is because he knows how important these artificially low interest rates are to propping up uh, the bubbles in the economy. Well, if he knows how important it is to keep these bubbles from deflating, How can he believe it's going to be so simple to raise interest rates if inflation picks up without pricking the bubble? So the whole thing is ridiculous. But as I said on one of my prior podcasts about the market, I think that uh, the Fed is going to have to deliver a much larger dose of monetary stimulus because whatever stimulus has already been telegraphed to the market is already baked in. So now they need more, right? The drug addicts need an even larger dose of this monetary heroin. They need shock and awe at this time. So in that respect, cash carry is right that in order to get the markets to go up, the Fed has to bring more to the party as far as more money printing, another round of QE, a massive commitment uh, to print money and to keep interest rates at zero. But where cash carry is wrong is the ability of the Fed to actually uh, uh, put out the inflation fire if it really starts to rage. It can't. And basically, what Gary really wants uh, the Fed to say without actually saying it because he understands the ramifications is that we are going to keep interest rates at zero no matter what happens to inflation. No matter how high inflation goes, we're going to stay at zero. See, that's really what he wants. And in fact, That's what the Fed is going to do. Whether they want to come out and say it or not, you have to read between the lines. They can't raise interest rates because they'll prick the very bubble that they deny exists. And the reason they're keeping them at zero, the reason they're saying that they're never going to raise them is because they understand this. And so they're trying to thread this needle, right, without pricking the bubble. Uh, And so when Cash Gary comes out with these comments, he's clearly lying. In fact, The one thing about the bubble is that nobody at the Fed wants to acknowledge its existence. In fact, at the press conference that uh, followed up on the decision to leave rates at zero, one of the most ridiculous comments that Powell made is his denial that there was a bubble. Because somebody asked him, and I don't remember who, uh, But one of the reporters at this press conference asked Powell if he was worried about this easy monetary policy, you know, about his commitment to keep the rates at zero till 2023, 2024, if this risked creating bubbles in the financial markets. Now, again, I mean, talk about closing the barn door after the horses have already left, I mean, the barn is completely empty as far as that's concerned. All the horses are gone forever. You know, the bubbles are already there. The idea that they risk creating one, we're already in one. But more ridiculous than that question was Powell's answer. See, Powell went back and said, you know, what we've learned from our prior experiences is that we don't have to worry about this. And he specifically cited the failure of quantitative easing, and 0% interest rates that the Fed used following the 2008 financial crisis to inflate any bubbles. He actually said, because we got no bubbles as a result of QE before and 0% interest rates before, since that monetary policy did not create any bubbles, well, why should this monetary policy create any bubbles? I mean, I couldn't believe what I was hearing because Where does this guy think we've been living? We are living in the biggest financial bubble in history because of the very policies that Powell now claims he can repeat because they didn't create any bubbles of the past. We are living in the massive bubble that those very policies created. In fact, the reason that they have to keep interest rates at zero indefinitely is because they don't want to prick this massive bubble that we're living in thanks to the Fed. I mean, the Fed is the architect of this bubble, and yet they don't even acknowledge that it exists. Now, obviously, he's lying. I mean, there's no way that Powell doesn't know the stock market is in a bubble, because every time the stock market comes down, he comes back in to supply more air. He is worried about the stock market going down precisely because he knows it's a bubble. For him to suggest that the Fed didn't blow any bubbles in the past, so we don't have to worry about them blowing any bubbles in the future. I mean, either the guy is completely clueless about monetary policy and about history, or he is deliberately uh, lying in order to maintain the pretense that there are no bubbles. In fact, ironically, on the very day, right, Powell is talking about the fact that there are no bubbles, we had the IPO of Snowflake, right? This IPO came out. And when the stock opened, I think the market cap of Snowflake, I don't remember exactly what it was, but it was more than five times higher than the valuation placed on that company by the bankers back in February of this year. And by the time it peaked out that day before it sold off uh, back down to around where it opened a little lower, it was greater than sevenfold. So the market cap of Snowflake had gone up seven times you know, uh, since February of this year. How can this not be a bubble? I mean, there's nothing about this market that doesn't resemble a bubble. I mean, I remember Alan Greenspan back in the day when he was like, well, you never know a bubble until after it pops. And I thought at that time he was missing all of these crazy signs of a bubble that we had during the dot com days. Yet, uh, you know, Greenspan couldn't see that bubble. This one is even bigger. The signs are even harder to miss. And again, everything the Fed is doing proves that they know the stock market is in a bubble because their entire policy is dedicated to preventing that bubble from deflating, which is why I think the markets are probably going to put the Fed's resolve to the test once again because I think the markets could easily continue to sell off until the Fed comes to the rescue, right? The air is going to come out of the bubble until the Fed comes rushing in with a new supply of air. Now, the Fed did get some interesting questions uh, about inflation. One of them was a reporter pointed out that, you know, now the Fed has specifically stated that its goal is to have inflation average 2% 2% over time. That means that since inflation was below 2%, at least again, it's this is just the way the government measures it, the CPI. And again, inflation is an expansion of the money supply. The CPI measures consumer prices, which react to inflation. They are not inflation. But clearly, consumer prices are already rising at a rate that exceeds uh, what is shown in the CPI. But if you take the numbers that the Fed is relying on, or rather hiding behind, since those numbers have been below 2% for many, many years, if the Fed is going to achieve an average of 2%, that means that future CPI increases have to be north of 2% in order for the entire time period to average out to 2%, right? We, we've been below it for so long. We have to be way above it. So if you look at the Fed's actual projections where the FOMC members uh, project what they think the uh, numbers are going to be. So they say, here's what we think the unemployment rate is going to be. Here's what we think GDP is going to be. Here's what we think inflation is going to be. And of course, it's all pure guesses. These guys have no idea what anything is going to be. So they're, you know, they're just guessing and pretending they know. But not a single member of the FOMC has a single year in their projection where inflation is 2%, let alone above 2%. They're projecting that inflation stays below 2%, even though they are trying to get it to go above. And so the guy that asked the question says, "Look, you know, you've had this two percent target for years, and you've never been able to hit it. Are you now saying that now that you're targeting inflation above two percent, that you don't think you're going to hit that target either?" And the the answer though was really kind of surprising because basically what Powell said is, "No, given the other uh, conditions that exist in the economy, even though our goal." is to have inflation above 2%, we don't think we will achieve it. We think that the market will prevent that from happening and that even though we're targeting officially an inflation rate above 2%, we're not going to get an inflation rate above 2%, which is such nonsense. Because clearly, if the Fed really believed those numbers and it really wanted the CPI to go up by 2%, it could just print even more money. I mean, if they were that convinced that consumer prices were gonna be that behaved despite all the money they've already printed and injected into the economy. If they really think that three years from now, we're still gonna have a CPI that's moving up by less than 2%, well, they could just print more money right now. They could already come out with a bigger uh, quantitative easing program. The fact of the matter is I think the FOMC is afraid to put a CPI projection that exceeds 2%. They have to continue to keep up the pretense that inflation is nowhere in sight, that inflation is is, is not even on the horizon, that even if they want inflation above 2%, that we're not going to get it. Because the last thing the Fed wants to do is send a signal to the bond market that we're going to have higher inflation, because then the bond market starts to price it in. And the minute the bond market starts to price in higher inflation, the party's over. Because then interest rates go up and this whole levered economy comes collapsing down, which actually brings me to another ridiculous Q&A on this very topic uh, with respect to inflation. Because another reporter asked a good question, got a bad answer, but asked a good question. Why do we need more inflation? Right? Why do we need higher inflation? Right? What's wrong with the inflation rate we have now? But why does the Fed need more inflation? And of course, Powell either has to believe one of two things, right? Either he believes that higher inflation will lead to more economic growth, that if we just target inflation, the act of creating more inflation in and of itself will create economic growth. So either he believes that, or he believes that low inflation is somehow a barrier to economic growth. And that if we allow inflation to go up, we kind of remove that barrier and, and then we'll have the growth so that maybe higher consumer prices is just a sacrifice, right? That we all have to make this sacrifice in order to have economic growth. We need to also have this bad thing of higher prices to enable this good thing of growth. Now, he has to believe one of those two things. And of course, either one is wrong, but he has to believe one, but he didn't even admit to either. Basically, this is the answer that Powell gave to the question of why, you know, why do we need higher prices? Because it should be obvious we don't. Nobody wants higher prices, right? I just keep, I think about the, the guy, the old man uh, at the end of the video, the Walmart video that I did. If you haven't seen my uh, video, it's on my uh, YouTube channel where I went out to Walmart parking lot with my sign, uh, trying to uh, uh, get people to pay extra to support uh, a $15 minimum wage. And the guy at the end is hysterical. And he's like, you know, nobody wants higher prices, you know? So it's really funny. I don't want to give it away. If you haven't seen it, you should uh, watch that video. But look, nobody wants higher prices. We all want to pay lower prices. And then, you know, Powell says, yes, I know it's counterintuitive. I mean, why is it that we need more inflation? And then Powell gave his answer, right? "This This is it, right? So what Powell said is that when you have really low inflation, the result of that is you have really low interest rates. Now, in particular, you're talking about long-term interest rates because that's where the inflation premium really kicks in. So what Powell is saying is, hey, if we have really low inflation, then people will be willing to loan us money at a lower rate of interest because we won't have to compensate them for the loss to inflation because with lower inflation, there's less of a loss. And so we can have low interest rates. Now, But isn't that a good thing? I mean, isn't that one of the added benefits of having low inflation? Not only do you get low prices, but you can borrow at low rates of interest because the lenders don't have to worry about being repaid for the loss of purchasing power due to inflation. So Powell said, here's the problem with low interest rates. Now, what if the economy turns down And now the Fed wants to artificially influence the market. If the Fed wants to try to manipulate the economy and try to stimulate it by cutting rates, well, if rates are already really low, then we don't have a lot of ammunition, right? There's not a lot of arrows in that quiver. So in order for the Fed to be able to artificially stimulate the economy by cutting interest rates, interest rates have to be higher to start out. So that then they can manipulate them down. He said, if we have these low interest rates permanently because of low inflation, we don't have all that maneuvering room. So we need to get inflation higher now so that interest rates will go up now so that we can cut them in the future, which is all a bunch of nonsense because the Fed is the one that's artificially suppressing interest rates right now. The Fed is claiming that it doesn't want low inflation because it doesn't want low interest rates when everything the Fed is doing is to suppress interest rates. I mean, why did they interfere in the repo market even before COVID? Because interest rates were rising. Why did the Fed launch a massive quantitative easing program to prevent long-term interest rates from rising? That's why it did it. The Fed is doing everything it can to keep long-term interest rates from rising. But now it's saying the reason it has to create more inflation is to make long-term interest rates rise. Well, what does the Fed want? Do they want long-term interest rates to be low or do they want long-term interest rates to be high? Powell is speaking out of both sides of his mouth because he doesn't know what he's talking about or because he's just lying. I mean, The real reason That Powell wants interest rates to stay low. Or rather, the real reason that Powell wants more inflation is because he can't do anything about it. Because the only way he can keep the air from getting out of the bubbles that he denies exists is by creating inflation. The only way to prop up asset markets is through inflation. The only way the government can keep spending is if the Federal Reserve makes it possible by creating inflation. So that's why Powell is saying the Fed is going to allow more inflation, because it's the only way to keep this pyramid scheme going, to keep the Ponzi from imploding. We got to keep the government spending. We got to keep the assets inflated. We got to keep all these balls in the air. And the only way to do that is with more inflation. So Powell has to make up some BS excuse to explain why something bad is good why we need higher prices, even though we want and benefit from lower prices. And he came up with this asinine explanation that the reason we need higher inflation is so that we can have higher interest rates now and then have lower interest rates in the future, even though the Powell wants lower interest rates right now. So if anything, Powell's explanation about why we need more inflation should prove that the Fed is completely clueless has no idea what it's doing, or is just outright lying every time it has to answer a question. Because like Jack Nicholson and a few good men, they may know the truth, but they know that the markets and the public can't handle the truth. Speaking about the truth, I want to look at some of the economic data that came out earlier in the week. And a lot of the news uh, was bad. Uh, The housing starts and permits numbers came in quite a bit softer than uh, had been estimated. And personally, you know, at some point, these numbers are going to really sink as well, because a lot of this new home starts and and building has to do with people fleeing uh, the cities for the suburbs. And as a result of this, you know, you're getting uh, a a construction boom out there. Uh, There is, uh, you know, some new activity all being supported by the Fed and artificially low interest rates. If it wasn't for the fact that mortgage rates were so low, I mentioned on this podcast, I forget how many weeks ago, that the 30-year fixed rate was down to 2.5%. If it wasn't for that, uh, this new uh, boom uh, would not be possible. But at some point, it is going to go bust because the economy is relapsing into recession. And you know, a lot of people think they're going to be working from home. They're not going to be working at all. And, and, and so at that point, it doesn't really matter uh, where you're living. Uh, but a, a lot of these uh, real estate uh, prices are going to fall in real terms. And a lot of these homes are going to end up being far more expensive to maintain uh, than, than, than people understand. And I also think a lot of these uh, suburban towns, too, I mean, these, uh, these towns could be in trouble and people could be uh, shocked at uh, how high property taxes may end up going in the future. And so uh, the cost of having these homes in uh, in the suburbs may end up being a lot higher uh, than a lot of the buyers uh, currently realize. Retail sales numbers also came out. And these numbers, again, were also lower than what had been estimated. Not only that, there were some downward revisions. So the July retail sales number, which was originally reported, At up 1.2, they revised that to down 0.9. And the consensus for August had been for a gain of 1%. And there we gained just 0.6%. If you take out automobiles, they revised the July number, which had been reported at up 1.9. That was revised down to up 1.3. Still a strong number, but not as strong as 1.9. The August number was supposed to be 1%. And that came out at 0.7. Across the board, you know, X vehicles and gas, they revised July from up 1.5 to up 1.1. And the consensus on August, uh, up 1.1, up 0.7. And the control group, uh, which was 1.5% in July, revised to up only 1%, was supposed to be up 0.5% in August. It actually declined by 0.2%. So a lot of air now starting to come out of that retail sales bubble. Also, you know, on the jobless claims, we got some more good news, supposedly, on the weekly unemployment claims. We got 860,000 new unemployment claims filed. Now, why is that good news? You know, well, last week, we had 893,000, which was an upward revision of the 884 that we were initially told. But the reason this is supposedly good news is because it's under a million, right? I think this may be the third week in a row where we've had weekly unemployment claims that are under a million. So apparently that's the bar now. One million is now the bar. And if you're beneath the million, that's good news. I mean, think about that for a minute how weak is this economy where if only a million new people lose their jobs in a given week, that's good news. Hey, we managed to keep the number of new people getting fired to less than a million. Hey, talk about lowering a bar, right? I mean, so this is bad news. The fact that people are continuing to lose their jobs, supposedly the economy is starting up again. In fact, I read another article about the businesses. This is a story, I think, I guess it was a survey done by Yelp. They said 40% of the businesses that temporarily closed had actually permanently closed, that a very significant percentage of the businesses that, that closed temporarily are actually closed permanently. And I think the number is actually going to be a lot higher, because I think there are some people who are now intending to reopen their businesses or may have already reopened their businesses, they're gonna end up reclosing their businesses. Except the first time that they closed, they thought it was temporary. The next time they close, they're gonna realize that it's permanent. So this recovery is actually far weaker uh, than everybody thinks. And we're not even recovering to a, a, you know a normal economy, we're recovering to a recession. We're not gonna get back to the bubble that preceded the recession, because that bubble has popped. And no matter what the Fed does, I don't think they can put air into it. They, they may be able to levitate uh, asset prices, but they're not going to do anything to generate any kind of real economic growth. In fact, we got a reminder of that today when we got the current account deficit for the second quarter. And the first quarter's current account deficit was originally reported at 104. 0.2 billion, and that was upperly revised to 111.5 billion. The consensus for the second quarter current account deficit was 159 billion, which is a pretty big number. But we managed to exceed it substantially. We got 170.5 billion for the current account deficit. That's better than a 50 percent increase. Over the previous quarter. In fact, this is the worst current account deficit, worst meaning the largest, that the US has ever had since the third quarter of 2008. And if you recall, what happened following the third quarter of 2008 is the financial crisis of 2008. So, in other words, we haven't had a current account imbalance this large since the financial crisis of 2008 began. And you could argue that one of the reasons that we had that crisis was because of the current account. It was because of all of the debt that we took on that was reflected in that enormous current account deficit that we had the financial crisis. The financial crisis was a debt crisis. We had borrowed too much money. There was too much debt. And one of the ways that was manifesting itself was in these exploding current account deficits. We were borrowing a lot of money to live beyond our means to buy stuff we couldn't afford. And all of that was reflected in the current account deficit. And the only reason the current account deficit reversed was because a massive recession put a stop to it. So the question is, what is this uh, massive increase in the current account predicting now? Is this a harbinger of another financial crisis? course it is. It's a harbinger of a much bigger one. And by the way, I don't think it's finished. I think when we get the numbers for the third quarter, I think the third quarter current account deficit is going to be even bigger than the second quarter current account deficit. So that's going to be an all-time record. And yes, at some point, we're going to start this next crisis. These current account deficits are evidences of economic imbalances To the degree that we would expect to have another crisis, because that's what happened before. And since we haven't already had the crisis, the current account deficits are going to keep getting bigger and bigger until the crisis puts an end to it. Because as long as Americans are staying home and not working, and the Federal Reserve keeps on printing money to replace their lost income, and obviously it doesn't replace their lost productivity, but it replaces their lost income. But now we have to rely more heavily on the productivity of the rest of the world, who's producing the stuff that we're buying with all the money the Fed is printing. These current account deficits are going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, At one time, the United States was a huge creditor nation, and we uh, had a current account surplus right? We were, we were the biggest creditor nation in the history of the world. Now we're the largest debtor nation. I mean, you look at the countries that have current account surpluses, you know, Japan, Germany, Switzerland, South Korea, you know, all these strong economies, they all have surpluses. In general, it's the weak economies that have current account deficits Right? I mean, a surplus means you're earning money. It's like you're operating at a profit. You have more income coming in from your investments abroad than you're paying out. Normally, when a country has a current account deficit, it's more of an up and coming country. It's a poorer country that's attracting investment from wealthier countries, and it's using that investment to try to grow and to become a richer country. But when you're already a rich country, you should have income off of your foreign investments to reflect that wealth. The difference is, America isn't even an up and coming economy where we're borrowing money and capital from the rest of the world so that we can grow the economy. We're borrowing money from the rest of the world so we can keep spending. As our real economy is is, is deteriorating, we're trying to maintain our lifestyle by going deeper and deeper into debt. So this is a very, very dangerous sign uh, that the markets are ignoring. It's a huge warning sign of a real serious problem underlying the economy. Again, the last time the problem was this big, we had the financial crisis of 2008. Now the problem's even bigger. It's going to get even bigger. And the financial crisis that's coming up is going to be much bigger than the one we had in 2008. Now Another thing, too, that happened this week that actually failed uh, to boost the markets was Donald Trump on Twitter doing exactly what I said he was going to do. He basically stabbed the congressional Republicans in the back and sided with the Democrats, right? The Republicans had already compromised and they had agreed to go to one and a half trillion. Remember, the latest round of you know stimulus, the Democrats want something like three trillion dollars in new money printing and government spending, right? The government uh, issues bonds, the Fed buys the bonds, prints money, the government spends it, right? That's what the Democrats want. The Republicans said, no, 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 that's too much deficits, that's too much money printing, that's too much spending. We only want to do a trillion. Now, as I've been saying, the minute the Republicans conceded the argument that stimulus is needed and stimulus is helpful, they lost the debate. They shouldn't have been at $1 trillion. They should have been at zero. That's the way to win the debate. The minute you give in and say that you're willing to spend something, well, then you've lost because now you're just stingy. If $1 trillion is good, why isn't $2 trillion better, right? So I knew that they had already lost and they were going to have to come up. So they had come up a little bit, but the Democrats stood for him. No, 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 that's not enough, right? We want more. Well, then Donald Trump came out and said, the Democrats are heartless. You know They don't care about people who need money. They're holding out. So you know what? Republicans, just give in, agree to the higher number because it's all good anyway, because it's all coming back to America, which first of all is nonsense. How is it all good? It's all coming back to America. What's coming back to America? All the inflation that uh, the Federal Reserve is going to have to create uh, in order to finance this massive increase in government deficit spending. I mean, it's not good for America. It's bad for America. You know, it's not that the Democrats don't have hearts. It's that they don't have brains. I mean, supposedly the Republicans do. That's why they're opposing all this spending. But I guess Donald Trump doesn't have a brain either. He shares the same affliction as the Democrats. He thinks it has to do with heart. It doesn't. It's not a function of caring. It's a function of knowing and and understanding. But now that Donald Trump has basically told the Republicans, look, just support whatever the Democrats want, right? We have to make sure that this money goes out to the people. Uh, and so just support the mean Democrats who don't, you know, because they're trying to hold out for extra. I mean, this whole thing is going to backfire politically uh, on, on Trump and the Republicans. I mean, the problem is what the hell do the Republicans stand for? Nobody knows. I mean, I know what the Democrats stand for, socialism, right? They want big government. They don't like capitalism. They don't like the free markets. They think the country is full of a bunch of racists, right? And capitalism doesn't work. They don't like our our founding principles. They don't like the founding fathers. They want to totally redo America and to make it a more uh, socialist type economy because they think that's going to be fairer. Uh, They think we should redistribute the wealth. There's all this stuff that the Democrats believe in. It's all a bunch of nonsense, but at least we kind of know where they stand. What the hell do the Republicans stand for? I mean, they don't stand for limited government. They don't stand for capitalism. They don't stand for the constitution. I mean, they basically want everything the Democrats want, except less of it. That's all. So how are you going to win if that's your argument? Yes, the Democrats are right. We need more government. They just want too much. Yes, the Democrats are right. We should run bigger deficits, just not quite so big. Yes, the Democrats are right. We should print a lot of money, but we should just print a little bit less. I mean, come on. That's what the Republicans have. We want more government too, just not as much more government as the Democrats. Well, if you believe in more government, then why not just go for the Democrats, right? That's what the Republicans are telling you. We're just like the Democrats, only we've toned it down. We're we're, we're a toned down version of the Democrats. Well, hell, let's just go for a real Democrat. I mean, how is that an appealing alternative to what the Democrats are offering, right? What what the Republicans need to do is really show what their ideology is, what principles they're committed to, except there are no principles they're committed to other than their own re-election. And they know that it's much easier to be re-elected if you promise something for nothing. Well, then, you know, what's the purpose of being a Republican then? Just, Just be a Democrat. But in any event, the point of this was this should have been bullish for the stock market because what does it mean? It means this next round of stimulus has a greater chance of being passed, and it has a greater chance of being passed in the, the Democratic version of the $3 trillion. So that's bigger deficits. That's more money printing. Yet the stock market went down, right? The stock market didn't react to Trump siding with the Democrats to push the Republicans to you know, enact more spending, bigger deficits, more money printing, and more inflation, which is why I've been saying that we need more from the Fed. I mean, not that we need more uh, in a good way, but if you're relying on the Fed to sustain these bubbles, well, then what the Fed's done so far ain't enough. The bubbles are now so big that we need even more air uh, to, to maintain them. And so ultimately, that is what the Fed is going to do, right? And it's a question of what is the breaking point? How much more does the market have to go down before the Fed says uncle and comes up with an even bigger QE program? We'll find out soon, though. Now, one of the interesting uh, dynamics going on in the market is uh, the weakness in the oil stocks. I mean, the oil stocks continue to get clobbered. Uh, and, you know, we own oil stocks in our uh, managed accounts. We were, I uh, kind of, underweight for a while, and I think we went up to about an equal weight. In, in energy. But at some point, we may have to start being an overweight. But the sector has been very weak. And I think a lot of that has to do with investors believing that it's going to be a long, long time before the world returns to normal in that people resume uh, their normal uh, transportation, right? That people start traveling back and forth to work instead of working from home or people Uh, Travel on airplanes. So I think they see a tremendous decline in the demand for oil. And they're probably right as far as that's concerned. But what's interesting is if the economies of the world are really going to be so weak that oil demand is really going to be so low, why isn't the rest of the market imploding? Why is it just the oil stocks? Why aren't more stocks uh, going down? It's just that investors don't really care about the economy, they care about the Fed and the money printing and the momentum. And since these energy stocks don't have any momentum, I guess all that money printing isn't benefiting them. It's these momentum stocks that are being bought by all the money that the Fed is creating because the economy is so weak. And because the economy is so weak, that's why so many people believe that oil stocks are such bad investments because they believe oil prices will be low indefinitely because the economy will be weak indefinitely despite what the Fed is doing. But in reality, oil stocks are actually going to be major beneficiaries of what's happening now. Uh, at least the major low-cost producers. I mean, the, the oil companies that are in trouble are the high-cost producers. They're dead, right? The American uh, energy industry, right? The shale industry, fracking, That that that's dead. This the whole thing is going to collapse. No question about that. But oil prices are ultimately going much, much higher along with other prices. Inflation is going to benefit energy, just like it's benefiting gold and silver, just like you can see it now benefiting industrial metals, just like you can see it now benefiting a lot of commodities. That's why you can see these industrial metal stocks, these agriculture stocks, they're all moving up now. You know, it's just the energy uh, segment of the commodity market that's still held down by the fears of a weak economy and uh, diminished demand for energy. But everybody is overlooking diminishment in supply. A lot of the producers are going to leave the market. Plus, all of this inflation that the Fed and other central banks are creating is going to increase the costs of producing oil. And that's going to especially hurt companies that already have high costs. Those high costs are going much higher. And so they're going to be losing even more money if they stay in business. So eventually, there is going to be a massive collapse in the amount of oil produced in the world. But at the same time, the price of the oil that is produced in the world is going to be much, much higher. And so that means a lot of these companies that are well-positioned, that have the good balance sheets, that are the low-cost producers, that are going to survive when all the higher cost marginal producers go out of business, they're going to be around to reap the rewards of much, much higher uh, prices. And their production will still be there. They'll produce what other companies no longer produce to satisfy a smaller market. And I think the market where you're going to see the biggest decline in energy use is going to be the United States, because America is going to see the biggest decline in its standard of living. Americans are going to be too broke to travel, and a lot of Americans are going to be unemployed. And the ones that aren't unemployed, yeah, they probably will be working from home, and so they're not going to drive as much. And so energy demand is going to come way down in the U.S. Energy usage is going to come way down. But if you want to use gas, you're going to have to pay a much higher price for it. And that's another reason why fewer Americans are going to be driving and flying, because they won't be able to afford it when the prices are much higher. So I think these energy stocks are great buys. It's just interesting that the traders can be so bearish On energy, yet so bullish on the economy at the same time, and they're bearish on energy because they think that people aren't going to be traveling. Well, then if they're not traveling, it's because the economy is weak. But of course, while oil stocks have been getting hammered, uh, the gold stocks continue to trade well. Although, last couple of days, uh, the gold stocks were a bit weaker, again, probably because the Fed did not deliver. A more dovish you know, statement on Wednesday, right? That's what's hurting the NASDAQ uh, because the Fed didn't come out with even more QE. So I think the same thing is the reason gold stocks are down. In fact, the GDX was down one and three quarters percent today. Uh, GDXJ was down a little bit better. So the smaller stocks held up a little bit better, down uh, 0.6%. But to me, it doesn't even matter. Right, what the Fed says. It doesn't matter whether the Fed uh, lets everybody know that their loose monetary policy is going to get even looser. Gold prices already don't reflect the enormity of the inflation that's already been created, let alone the inflation that's yet to be created. I mean, the Fed is already so easy based on what it's told us it's going to do that gold should be higher and gold stocks should be much higher because gold stocks are priced for a much lower gold price than the one that we have today, let alone the higher price that we're gonna have tomorrow. So eventually, investors in this space are gonna realize that none of this matters. It's all noise. And they're gonna understand that whatever the Fed says, we know what the Fed is gonna do because they are maintained to sustaining these bubbles. They are committed to sustaining governments and deficit spending, and they're committed to inflating away the debt. They're committed to helping the government Uh, from having to default or cut any spending or disappoint any voters, the Fed is all in on inflation. And when gold traders figure this out, the rest of it is noise. They should just be buying and buying and buying, and eventually they will. But in the meantime, there's still opportunities uh, for other people to get on board. But a great example of what's coming in the gold sector is what happened with Kinross uh, Gold today. And we own Kinross in our, um, in our managed accounts. Kinross was up about 7% today. At one point, it was up over 10% on the day, but the late day sell-off in mining stocks uh, took it down a bit, but it still closed up just under 7% on the day. The news that propelled uh, Kinross to this type of gain was that it announced a dividend. In fact, this is the first time in the history of the company that it's going to be paying a dividend. And the dividend that it's going to be paying is 1.2%, which may not sound like a lot, but realize that's almost twice the yield on a 10-year treasury. But the point is, it's paying a dividend at all. It never paid one before, and now it was able to start to pay one. This is what's going to be happening throughout the gold mining sector. Gold companies are making a ton of money. They're going to make even more money in the future than they're making now. Every time the price of gold goes up, it drops right to their bottom lines. These companies are cash cows. They're going to be paying out that cash to their shareholders in terms of other dividends. In fact, the gold mining companies are going to be among the only companies raising their dividends. Most companies are going to be cutting their dividends if they even pay dividends. So these gold stocks are going to become even more valuable, even more desirable to investors, not because of the potential for growth, but because of the actual current yield that they're able to deliver. And they're the ultimate in inflation hedge because that income stream that you're getting from your gold stock will go up as the cost of living goes up. See, if you're getting income from more traditional sources or certainly from bonds, your income is fixed. It's not going up, the coupons aren't going up even as your cost of living goes up. But as inflation drives up the consumer price index, it also drives up the price of gold. And as the price of gold goes up, your gold company has more earnings and now they can pay you a higher dividend. And now you can use those increased dividends to buy more expensive consumer goods. So gold stocks are the perfect investment for what's going on right now. Do they have risk? Of course, every stock has risk. But right now, given the dynamic, I think that the risk in the mining sector is actually a lot less Than most other sectors and in addition you can get a higher yield you can get yield on these gold stocks these a lot of these nasdaq stocks that people are buying that are at you know nosebleed valuations not only are you paying up for the stock but you're not getting paid anything to own the stock they pay no dividends now and they're never going to pay any dividends gold itself was not dragged lower by the sell-off in the gold mining stocks although it did close well off its intraday highs but gold still managed to settle Up about $4 on the day, 1948.90, I think, is the last price. So just below 1950. But again, what's very significant about gold is that it is building support above the old record high. And the more time we spend above the old high, the stronger what used to be resistance now becomes support. And we are building for a much, much bigger uh, rally. In fact, a client of mine who I guess also has an account with Morgan Stanley emailed me a link today that he saw when he logged into his account and prominently displayed on the home screen where you log into your Morgan Stanley account was a large photo of a gold nugget. And it reads, investing in gold, add a new dimension to your portfolio, learn more, and then you click there. So imagine that. Morgan Stanley uh, account holders, the first thing they see when they try to log in is, hey, how about adding some gold to your portfolio? It's a new dimension, meaning it's never been a dimension that Morgan Stanley has incorporated before. So they had no interest in adding gold to their investors' portfolios when it was 300, 400, 500, 1,000, 1,200, 1,500. But now that gold is over 1,900, uh, Morgan Stanley wants investors to consider incorporating it into their portfolio and to learn more about it. Now, I'm not saying that Morgan Stanley is top-ticking the market. Clearly, uh, they should have come in sooner, but Morgan Stanley is probably one of the first of the big banks to be actively encouraging its clients to invest in physical gold. They're not going to be the last. Uh, There's many, many more banks that we're going to follow uh, in uh, Morgan Stanley's footsteps. So I don't take this at all as a contrarian indicator. I just think this is an early sign of things to come. Because right now, you don't have the real money that's been going into gold and silver. I mean, I've been talking about this for years, uh, about how small the market really is, how few people uh, actually own any gold at all, how little gold the average investor has as part of their portfolio. And it's because firms like Morgan Stanley were just making fun of gold. They didn't think anybody should have any gold. The fact that they're now waking up to this reality and for the first time trying to introduce their clients to gold. So it's not just Peter Schiff, right? I'm uh, out on the the fringe there. Uh, But now you have the mainstream uh, investment advisors giving the same type of advice that I've been giving. And remember, I've never told people to go all in on gold. I've always said, hey, own 5 to 10% in physical gold. Just that Morgan Stanley and everybody else said have nothing in physical gold. Now they're finally thinking like me. They're thinking that people should have gold in their portfolios, and they are encouraging their clients to do so. So this is the beginning of a wave. This isn't the end of the wave. And anyone listening to me needs to climb on board. I mean, if you're not on board already, I mean, I don't know what's keeping you out of gold and silver if you've been listening to me, but maybe if you're a new listener, you just started and you're worried it's too late, not even close to being too late, you got to buy. Silver, on the other hand, it was down today. It did you know, sell off uh, with the mining stocks. It was down about 32 cents, 2672 uh, per ounce for silver. Again, I see even more upside potential in silver. People should own both. Hey, by the way, on my last podcast, I mentioned the Perth Mint program that we run at Europe Pacific Capital. And I mentioned that you can have gold stored for free, but that there was a storage charge for unallocated silver. That charge was removed. I, I forgot about that. I mean, initially. There was no charge. And then years and years ago, they added a charge to store silver. Well, they recently removed the charge, and I forgot that. So you can buy all the silver you want and have it stored for free at the Perth Mint in Australia. So to me, that seems like a great deal because if you buy a lot of silver, it's pretty bulky. And oftentimes, it's very expensive to have a third-party store it. Here, you can have it stored in a government-owned mint, and it's reinsured through Lloyd. So I think it's a, as safe a place as any uh, to have your silver stored. And if you buy it there, well, then you don't have to deliver it either. So it's a, it, it's a great uh, uh, opportunity to learn about uh, the Perth Mint for gold and silver. Again, my website is goldyoucanfold.com. Uh, and that'll take you directly to the page on the Euro Pacific website that deals with the Perth Mint program, or you can call us up, ask for uh, Danielle uh, Parsons. Uh, she runs the Perth Mint program at Euro Pacific Capital and she can help you set up an account and, and buy, buy gold and silver. Also, another interesting market was the treasury bond market, which failed to rally, right? There was not a bid at all in the bond market, uh, despite the weakness that we've seen In the stock market over the last couple of days, the yield on the 30-year US Treasury is still low, uh, but it's getting close to 1.5%, 1.453. The yield on the 10-year, just under 0.7%, not making as big a move as the 30-year. But what's really going to be significant is when these yields break out. And ironically, as I discussed earlier in the podcast, Powell claims he wants higher long-term interest rates, right? After all, that's why he wants more inflation so we can have higher long-term interest rates. Well, he's about to get higher long-term interest rates. Remember, be careful what you wish for because it just might happen. The same thing is true when it comes to inflation. Be careful what you wish for, Neil Kashkari. I'm talking to you in particular, you know, when it comes to inflation, because the Fed is going to get a whole lot more inflation than they bargained for. And it's not going to be uh, too much of a good thing being good thing. It's going to be an example of too much of a good thing being a really, really bad thing. I mean, not only for America, but for the Fed as well, because it's going to expose the Fed uh, and it's going to put them in a a predicament from which there is no way out. Anyway, I need to wrap this podcast up. Tonight is uh, Rosh Hashanah, the beginning of uh, uh, Jewish New Year. So I got to get going. Uh, I've got uh, some Rosh Hashanah. Uh, things planned for this evening. Let me just uh, wish all of my Jewish listeners a happy new year, and I'll be back again uh, in the new year with uh, more podcasts. Bye for now.